The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, good morning again, everyone. Welcome. If you've been with us, you will recall then that we are continuing through a thematic series in the book of Genesis. And so as a brief refresher of what that means, we typically preach straight through books of the Bible here, uh, just sort of like verse by verse or section by section. For this particular series of eight sermons, we are working through the book of Genesis, uh, kind of taking big chunks at a time and drawing out major themes. Uh, Since Genesis is the first book of the Bible, it's reasonable that God would use it to introduce certain themes and ideas that he's going to continue to use and develop as the rest of scripture continues. And so a thematic study of Genesis is then worthwhile to increase our understanding of all of the Bible. In a thematic study, we don't necessarily go straight through. We don't hit every point in the narrative. Um, I've been skipping over a lot of things because Genesis is a pretty long book. We've got eight total sermons in the series, and so we have to kind of be choosy. And so the major themes that we've looked at so far, this being the seventh of the eight in the series. Uh, First, we looked at the theme of garden, the Garden of Eden in creation. And through that, we learned that God's design for creation is to fill the earth with a place where his people can live with him and enjoy him forever. Next, we saw that all of mankind is either the seed of the woman, which is God's chosen people, or the seed of the serpent, which is God's enemies. And God chooses the seed of the woman. He chooses his people, not based on their birth order or power or impressiveness or their good works. Uh, But in fact, God often likes to specifically choose the weak or unexpected because ultimately it isn't up to us to defeat the serpent, but rather Jesus will come and crush him once and for all. Next, in the flood, we learned about the theme of judgment and especially salvation through judgment. Judgment wipes away evil but it also serves to cleanse away evil, to make room for a new birth. And as God cleansed the earth through the judgment of the flood, he likewise cleanses us from our sins and makes us then able to be righteous. God showed us at Babel that the efforts of man to usurp him amount to nothing, but he also showed that God's mission to spread his own glory to the ends of the earth, like he promised back in the garden, cannot be thwarted. In Abraham... God revealed the mechanism by which he deals with his people, which is a covenant, a sworn promise. God offered a covenant with all mankind at creation through Adam. He said, if you will be my people, I will be your God. But he also knew that we would break that covenant and we would reject him and not be his people. And so he offers another covenant then to all who believe in Jesus. He says, through Jesus, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is true because Jesus actually did accomplish that first covenant of works in a way that we never could. Last week, we looked at some of the women in Genesis, particularly Rebecca and Rachel. And we discovered that even the weak and the powerless, those who have no particular esteem in this world, in fact, especially those, are vital to God's plan of salvation. Not because of their efforts or because of their greatness, but because of their faith. And so now... We're going to move on to the second to last theme in this series, 
The way that we normally go through these themes is I'll give an overview of the narrative portion of Genesis from which we're drawing our themes, and then we'll look to the rest of the Old Testament to see that theme come up again and again before finally moving on to Jesus, his fulfillment of that theme, and the New Testament teachings, how they apply to us. Today, I'm going to spend a little bit less time in the overview section because I'm going to spend a little bit more time in the how does this theme come true in Jesus section. Uh, And so this is a spoiler, but the theme of this week is the firstborn, or alternatively, birthright. And so you hopefully know that Jesus is the firstborn of all firstborn. And even though the firstborn is an extremely common theme in the Old Testament, when Jesus enters the scene, he completely blows away every idea that anyone had about what a firstborn could be and completely dominates the conversation. So we're going to spend extra time on that today. But our story in Genesis, our, <clears throat> our uh, narrative will be mostly about Jacob and his brother Esau, but we're also going to briefly cover Jacob's father Isaac and his son Judah and his other son Jacob, um, Joseph, and some of his sons as well. So let me read the introduction, as it were, to Jacob and Esau. We read a little bit of this last week. We're going to read it again this week from sort of a, a different angle. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And you'll remember that we called out last time, this would have been very unusual for the older to serve the younger. Typically, the younger would serve the older. So when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. After his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so again, maybe you'll remember from last week, it's not 100% clear whether or not this means that Rebecca remembered God's prophecy and rightly and properly favored Jacob or whether or not this was just simple preferences and showing uh, irresponsible favor to one child over the other. But regardless, Rebecca ends up being in the right because God has promised that Jacob will be the one to carry on the covenant, the birthright, and the rule. So later in Jacob and Esau's lives, when they're grown, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. And he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which is like red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So Jacob said, Swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
So let's pause here and talk about birthright. That's not a word that we use commonly today. It's not even a, a concept that makes sense in our cultural structures that we have today. But a birthright is a very, very important concept in essentially all ancient tradition, and in particular in the Bible. So when a man would have many sons in ancient days, and really kind of all the way up until like just a couple hundred years ago for the most part, um, it was considered foolish to split all of your inheritance, all of your possession amongst all of your sons. Because unlike sort of the economic engine that our world operates under today, uh, more people, more opportunity, uh, or rather more um, dispersion did not equal more opportunity. Today, we have an economy that is founded on innovation and creation, and so sort of the more the merrier, and the more you spread out, the more innovation, and the more, uh, the more creation there is, the more wealth generation comes from that. But again, before essentially the Industrial Revolution, it was the, the opposite. You had a fixed amount of what you had. Your wealth was entirely tied up in land and maybe like some, some crops and some animals that you had. And if you split up land in a whole bunch of different ways, or if you take your herd of a 1,000 sheep and split it up into five herds of 200, you have essentially destroyed your own wealth. And so instead, the wise, the proper, the traditional thing to do that everyone would do and would expect is that you would grant either all or a majority of your inheritance to one heir who would essentially take on the mantle of your family's wealth and well-being. And so this mantle came with, obviously, privileges, a double portion of the inheritance or even more. It came with a special blessing, and it came with authority in the household. You were expected to, to take your father's position as sort of the ruler or the leader of your household. And remember that these households we're talking about, we know that Abraham's household had enough people in it to field a small army of 300 warriors. So we're talking about thousands of people, all of their land and crops and possessions and flocks, sort of a proto-king. And so we're passing on this authority, but the birthright is also a substantial obligation. You didn't get to have all this stuff. You had to take care of all this stuff. You didn't get to be in charge of your brothers. They expected you to care for them and their families. Now, brothers could go their own way and you know, fend for themselves and try to strike out on their own, and many of them did, either successfully or not, but the expectation was the oldest brother, the firstborn son, would receive the birthright, which is a privilege and an obligation to receive a position of honor in the household, but also to care for the household. And so if you read this story without proper context, it could sound like Jacob is really putting the screws to Esau. Esau is coming home and he's starving and Jacob is just being mean and he won't give him any food and he just, he weasels Esau's birthright out from under him. And in some sense, that's certainly true. Jacob is well known to be wily and kind of underhanded. But also, the text even clears it up for us, Esau despised his birthright. What man in his right mind would take his vocation, his purpose in life, and cast it aside for a bowl of stew? I mean, frankly, if Esau is well and healthy enough to walk home and argue with Jacob. He's clearly not literally starving to death. Esau despised his birthright. So he, he despised it in probably two ways. Again, we can't read his mind, but it's likely that, one, he didn't care enough about it. He didn't value it properly. He didn't value it highly enough because he was willing to trade it for a bowl of stew. But also, it is likely that Esau, being a man of the field, being a hunter, being a physically impressive specimen, maybe he didn't really want to deal with the trouble and responsibility of that birthright. Esau didn't say, 
It's my job to pick up the mantle of my father and care for his household and care for my brothers and their families. He said, that sounds like a lot of hassle, and I don't really want to deal with that. I want to do my thing and live my life and go my own way. And so Esau despised his birthright. And Jacob, right or wrong, fulfills God's prophecy and takes that birthright from Esau. So as we enter into a discussion of our theme of the firstborn, I'm just going to point out what is hopefully an obvious pattern. Uh, The quote-unquote firstborn is often not, in fact, the one who was born first. Isaac was born after Ishmael. Jacob was born after Esau. Judah was born after Reuben. And Joseph was born after almost all of his brothers. And even Joseph's sons, Ephraim, was born after Manasseh. And yet, each of those are the ones who carry on the birthright or the covenant. None of them are the actual birth certificate firstborn. And yet, this word firstborn is applied to all of them. It's applied to many, many, literally hundreds of times the word firstborn or first fruits is used in the Old Testament. It's referring to the one who is not necessarily born first, but the one who is taking up the role, who receives the birthright, who takes that position of honor and authority. And that word is inextricably tied with the idea of inheritance because, again, traditionally, that firstborn, that one who receives that special honor, might receive either all of the inheritance or, at the very least, a double portion. And so we can use the word firstborn instead of thinking, oh, firstborn, the eldest child, we might think of firstborn as being another way of saying the preeminent one, the preeminent brother, the brother who stands above the rest, the brother who is set forward. Remember in Joseph's dream, he, even though he's the 11th son and the the second youngest, he sees his father and mother and all of his brothers bowing down to him symbolically. So he's not the oldest, but he is the forefront. He is the, the one who has been lifted up or raised up or put ahead of his brothers. And so when we say firstborn in the Bible, often it does refer to the one who is the eldest brother but only because it coincides with the one who is preeminent. And so this is just more evidence, as we've seen a couple of times in our thematic study, that God really likes to subvert or flip on its head our human assumptions and traditions. Birth order was extremely important in that day. And again, up until very recently, it was, it was not only the assumption of, oh, yes, of course, the, the eldest son will receive the birthright and the inheritance. It was it was the only right way to do it. And doing things a different way was potentially even morally wrong to many of the people who would have observed this situation. And yet, we see that God can, and frankly loves to, break the birth order. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, many times throughout the history of redemption. David was not the firstborn. Solomon was not the firstborn. Okay, The firstborn, in God's eyes, is the one that he has chosen and set above the rest, not the one who was born first. And there are different ways that a man, a son, can lose his status as the firstborn. Sometimes it seems to just be the will of God. Uh, Often, the one who is technically born first loses his birthright due to the sin of his parents, in the case of Ishmael, uh, or the sin of the brothers themselves, in the case of Reuben and Simeon and Levi. All of them lost their birthright status due to their sins, and the greatest blessing was given to Judah, the fourthborn. And the covenant was given to Joseph. Uh, backwards. Sorry, reverse that. The birthright was yeah, the covenant was given to Judah, and the birthright was given to Joseph. 
So throughout all of this, the most important thing that I want you to remember about the idea of the firstborn is, one, doesn't necessarily mean chronologically the oldest. Two, the firstborn, the birthright, is both a privilege and an obligation. And so we're going to work through a little bit of the text in Genesis, just doing, again, a brief summary because we're going to spend more time talking about Jesus in the New Testament today. I want to look at some of the things that come along with that status of being firstborn. If someone is called out in the Old Testament as being firstborn, what do we see? What do we expect? So first, we've seen the inheritance, the birthright, that double portion is granted to the firstborn, the one who holds the birthright. We also see that the firstborn carries on the family name. Some ways symbolically, but in many cases, literally. The tribes of Israel are called the tribes of Israel because they are all the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So the nation, the people, the ethnic group, the Israelites, are named after a guy, a firstborn. Esau was older, Jacob later named Israel, became an entire nation of people. So that firstborn carries the family name. And also remember that God is often referred to, especially in contrast to other false gods of the nations, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't know if Abraham was the firstborn. doesn't say. Isaac was not the firstborn. Jacob was not the firstborn. And yet their names are the ones by which God calls himself, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see this also even in the word Adam. Adam, the name of the first man, is the word that's used in the Hebrew Bible that we see translated mankind. And when you read in the Hebrew, when you read the Old Testament and you see it say mankind in English, in Hebrew it says Adam, just the guy. That guy, Adam, that first guy, we're just using his name to mean everybody. So being the firstborn, you get the family name. There's actually a little bit of this in my history, too. My last name is de Courcy. It's a French word. It means from Courcy, which is a little town in France. We have, pretty lucky, we have our family history going the whole way back to the original de Courcy. No idea who his father is. Why? Because he wasn't the first son. So instead of getting the family name, Mr. de Courcy I just got named the place he was born. So we can trace it all the way back, but then it ends because he wasn't the firstborn, and he didn't get the family name. We have a couple of guesses, but we can't know for certain, because he wasn't the firstborn. Along with the family name and the inheritance, the firstborn receives authority. We see this in Isaac's accidental blessing over Jacob. So Jacob not only trades away for Esau's birthright, but he also tricks Jacob into giving him the blessing that Isaac had intended for what he thought was his firstborn. That's Esau. So Isaac says to Jacob, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. So there's clearly a mantle of authority, a privilege and an obligation that comes with being the leader, the head of the household. And Isaac meant to grant this to his biological firstborn and by the providence of God, even through Jacob's deception, Isaac instead rightly gave this yoke of authority to Jacob instead, God's chosen firstborn. We also see in Kings an example of the misuse of this authority, but it is a telling example of exactly how much, 
how strong that authority would have been culturally. It isn't like today where you're the oldest and so you sort of boss your siblings around because you're bigger than they are. This was a, a legal, serious, enforceable, agreed upon societal norm. Jehoshaphat, this is one of the kings of Israel, slept with his fathers, means he died. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram his son reigned in his place. He had brothers. The sons of Jehoshaphat were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah again, actually, Michael, and Shephatiah. All of these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the whole kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So you see how that works. The inheritance was spread out. Lots of different sons get lots of different things, but the main portion and all of the authority is granted to the firstborn, Jehoram. Jehoram was 32 when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. And what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Uh, we find out later Jehoram killed all of his brothers. That was like his first act as king was like, well, I don't want to deal with any of these guys nipping at my heels, so I'll just have them all killed. And he kind of got away with it because he reigned for eight years after that. So obviously it wasn't right. It was a horrible sin. And yet... It is illustrative of how much authority came with that mantle of firstborn. He was kind of allowed to do that in the, the eyes of the legal system at the time. Okay, so the firstborn has an inheritance. That's the, the birthright. They have the family name. They have authority. And lastly, we see that the firstborn are consecrated to God. So first of all, in the sacrificial system, in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we see that the firstborn animal is the best. That's the, the prime, the one that is to be sacrificed to God, the first fruits, the firstborn. But it's not just animals. In Exodus 13, we see that when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So that means instead of sacrificing the firstborn of the donkey, you would instead sacrifice a lamb to kind of pay for it. Okay, so you'll redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you must break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time your son comes to you to ask, what does this mean? You shall say to him. So the firstborn son... The father must pay a special price to God because that firstborn son belongs to God, okay? And so when that firstborn son comes to the father and says, why did you do this? What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Okay, so you say to your son, son, it's because the firstborn always belongs to the Lord. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So the firstborn is, is special in the Lord's eyes. They belong to the Lord. They're consecrated to the Lord in a certain way. And prior to what we call the Levitical law or the Levitical system, this is actually really important, even though it's not explicitly stated. There's no like verse that says this is the way it was. But before the, the system in which the tribe of Levi, the men of Levi, would serve as priests, and they would be the ones to offer sacrifices. Before that was put in place, the firstborn of the household was the priest of that household. 
the firstborn. So that would be the patriarch and then his first son that received that mantle would become the new patriarch. And the patriarch of the household would also be the priest. He would offer the sacrifices on behalf of the family. He was expected to be kind of the spiritual authority, even the spiritual judge of his family. The firstborn in the eyes of God is both consecrated and priestly. And we see in Numbers 3, we see where this changes. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites instead of the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of the cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And God goes on then to explain what the Levites actually do. And even actually now that taxes, that redemption, where you pay for your firstborn son, that goes to the Levites now because the Levites have been set apart in that place, in that priestly role, instead of the firstborn. But by default, the firstborn is meant to be the priest to God. And so now we are going to move on past Genesis, past these early days, past the entire Old Testament. The word firstborn or firstfruits is used 400 times in the Old Testament. There are a gazillion examples that I could give for the sake of time and because I want to talk about something else much more important. We're skipping all of that. But let it be known, the word firstborn is very important in the Old Testament, and this description of what the firstborn is supposed to do would be well-known, common knowledge to all of the Israelites. And so now, Jesus enters the scene. We're going to go all the way ahead to Colossians chapter 1, and we see said of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. So, so remember, we've established that the firstborn in, in God's economy, in the way that God works, does not necessarily mean the chronologically oldest, although in Jesus' case it does, but more importantly, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be someone who was created. Okay, and the reason I'm hitting that point is because like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and like a lot of other cults and sects that are sort of adjacent to Christianity will assert that Jesus was not God or Jesus was like a God or like the first man to ascend to God, a lot of different ideas. But they, they'd say, no, Jesus was not like the same person as God. And they will go to this text and similar ones like it and say, look, the firstborn of all creation. So that means Jesus was created first. Okay, but that... That is a really good example of why a study of biblical theology, a study of the themes of the Bible, teaches us how to properly read the rest of the Bible. Because if you know what the word firstborn means from reading the Old Testament, from reading Genesis and Exodus and all the Old Testament, if you know what the idea of firstborn tells you, when you read firstborn of all creation, you don't think, oh, Jesus was created first before all the other stuff. No, you think Jesus is like the boss of creation. The idea of Jesus being the firstborn, it isn't like his birth certificate says firstborn. It's like his business card says firstborn. And that's like a silly way to put it, but like it's, it sticks with you, hopefully. Jesus' job, his role, his occupation, his vocation, his position is firstborn. So he has that inheritance and that birthright and that authority and that family name. He's consecrated. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And so what does the firstborn do? Remember that the birthright of being firstborn is both a privilege and an obligation. And so we're going to walk through each of those marks of the firstborn that we discussed, and we're going to see how Jesus possesses, perfects all of them. 
We're going to look a lot in Hebrews. Hebrews is, is a letter to the Hebrew people, of course. And so that means that the theme of firstborn is very accessible to the audience, right? The audience of Hebrews is reading it. They know all about the firstborn. And so the book of Hebrews is really a lot about the firstborn because it's such a familiar idea. And we're also going to spend some time in other epistles and then, of course, in Revelation, as we often go to in our study of Genesis, with Genesis being the introduction to God's redemptive story and Genesis, um, Revelation being the conclusion. So first, the firstborn. As I said before, the word I used is preeminent. So we're going to continue reading that passage in Colossians. It says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So even right here, Paul, instantly, he says, firstborn of all creation. And then he immediately says, and let me be clear, I'm not saying Jesus was created. Jesus created all things. So like Paul knows what he's saying. He knows what he meant right here. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is above all things because he created all things. He's greater than all created things. He's greater than the sum total of all created things. He is the one who is set higher than any other. Joseph saw his sheaf of wheat standing up and his brothers and his mother and father bowing down to him. Jesus' sheaf of wheat is off in space somewhere. It's so much higher than anything else because Jesus created all of this stuff. It all belongs to him. It's all under him. He is preeminent, the highest, the most, the best, the top. And in Hebrews 1, the author contrasts angels versus Jesus. He's saying Jesus is even higher than all the other supernatural beings. These angels that you read about in scripture, these angels that you're familiar with, you know they're powerful. You know they can appear and disappear and fly and do miracles. Hebrews 1, of the angels, God says, he makes angels his winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So, so God says, and the angels are my servants. But of the Son, that's Jesus, of the Son, God says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. So even God calls Jesus Lord, same title as himself. God says to Jesus, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up, and like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So the author of Hebrews is saying, look at this. Do you see this? God himself says of Jesus, he says, your Lord, he says, your creator, he says, you're imperishable, he says, you're never ending. Okay, so God is, is granting, not granting, acknowledging, recognizing, showing to Israel. He's saying, Jesus is, is the same as me. Jesus is as high as I am. He's above you, man. He is above the angels. Jesus is preeminent. And in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him, Jesus. God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is preeminent over all things, and because of that, he is entitled to the worship of every tongue and every knee. And that transitions us to the next mark of the firstborn, that carrying on of the family name. God bestowed on him the name above every name we saw in Philippians. Back to Hebrews 1. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
after making purification for sins, so after Jesus died and was resurrected, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus has received the name of God, the family name of God, the firstborn, the heir, the inheritor, the one who will rule, the prince in God's house. Jesus has inherited this name. Jesus himself knows this in advance. It's not like Jesus was unaware or surprised. In John 8, the Pharisees called Jesus out because they said, you, you can't forgive sins. Who do you think you are? Only God can do that. And Jesus said to them in John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham even existed, I am. I am is God's name. I am is the name that the Pharisees wouldn't speak out loud, and when they wrote it, they would use dashes instead of letters because they didn't even want to accidentally disrespect that name by writing it incorrectly. And Jesus said, I am. That's my name. So Jesus comes to earth, fully God, preeminent, the heir to God's house, and he says, I am God. I am Lord. I am creator. Jesus fully inherits, fully receives, fully bears and possesses that family name. He is the name of God. And with that name then, of course, comes authority. We read it in our scripture reading this morning from Ephesians 1. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to him, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God raised Christ from the dead. God seats Jesus at the right hand. The right hand is the place of honor and power. That is where the prince sits next to the king. God sits him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. So Jesus, after he has done his work on earth, after his birth and his death and his resurrection, he is brought by God up to sit at God's right hand where starting now and forever, in every age, in the age to come, he will be so far above all other rule and authority and power and dominion that everything is under his feet. It's not even, Jesus is not even just sitting head and shoulders above every other ruler and authority. They are under his feet. And that is ultimately fulfilled in Revelation 19 where we get the tiniest glimpse of what this, this ultimate authority actually looks like. What does it mean for Jesus to be in a position of authority? Because when he came on earth, we read the Gospels, and Jesus, he often teaches with authority. He says, oh, I am. He says, I forgive your sins. He, he says, you need to repent. He teaches with authority, but he doesn't, he doesn't bear any worldly authority. He isn't in charge of anything. He isn't powerful politically. He doesn't beat anybody up or throw anybody in jail. He can't make laws. He only teaches. But one day, as we read in Ephesians, he's going to be put over all other authority, and it's going to look like this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the picture of Jesus' authority that we should see when he is called the firstborn of all creation. And lastly, the firstborn is consecrated to God. And this is one of the most complex and most beautiful aspects of Jesus' nature as the firstborn. I encourage you, I've been doing this throughout the series. After having heard this, go back and read all of the book of Hebrews. It's like one of the most complex, like logically complex books of the Bible. But if you, if you can understand what it means to be a firstborn and what it means to be a priest in that role, the book of Hebrews is glorious. I'm just going to read a few, a few excerpts that hopefully give you a sense of, of the truth that is contained within. Because you'll remember that the firstborn being consecrated to God meant two different things. One, it meant that first, that best animal to be sacrificed. And it also meant that first son to be a priest. And Jesus is both. In Hebrews 7, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You see the author of Hebrews, he knows about this firstborn. He knows what it means for Jesus to be the firstborn. He is a priest forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the, the ultimate high priest. He's the firstborn of all firstborn. The firstborn is the priest of the house. Jesus is the priest of the world. And because, unlike all the other priests, he lives forever, he is constantly and eternally able to make intercession on your behalf for your sins. The, 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 the head of the household, the firstborn, or the Levitical priest, they would go once a day or once a week or once a year to make atonement for sins. Jesus makes atonement for sins constantly at all time, forever, once and for all. And in Hebrews 10, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. So when you, when you sin in, in the Levitical law, in the Old Testament, when you sin, when someone in your household sins, if you're the firstborn, you take your animal, you take your sacrifice, and you give it to God. You kill it as a representation of what your sin ought to cost for you. And so instead of killing yourself or the member of your household that committed that sin, you instead, symbolically, you put that sin onto that animal and you kill that animal. And now it says Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And skipping ahead a little bit, a single offering has protected, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does that mean, a single sacrifice for sins? It means that Jesus was the high priest of all the world and that the sacrifice which he gave for the sins of man is himself. The firstborn sacrificed the firstborn. And so therefore, brothers, continuing in Hebrews, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so we see that Jesus, through his high priestly work, his sacrifice of himself, the ultimate firstborn sacrifice, he is offering to us to enter into God's family. Jesus, through his work, offers to us the birthright of God. Jesus is offering to make all of us God's firstborn. And so, friends, then your response to this is either to reject or accept your birthright. Jacob and Esau. Jacob, undeserving, not the quote-unquote correct choice. Esau, everyone's preferred option, would have won the vote for firstborn, but Esau didn't want it. He despised his birthright. And so here's what's offered to you. In John chapter 1, Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. We've already seen that, creator, preeminent. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The birthright came to Esau. The birthright came to the expected place, and Esau did not want it. Esau did not receive his birthright. Continuing in John, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus offers to those who are willing to receive it a new birth into the family of God. Go back again to to Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And then skip ahead. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus sacrificed himself in a high priestly sacrifice, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. That is what Jesus' preeminence, that is what Jesus' role as firstborn can do. He has the birthright, the inheritance, the name, the authority. He is consecrated and holy to God. And because of that, he is able to offer to make you legally technically, in every sense, a child of God. In Romans 8, it says, Brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God, through Jesus, offers to all who would receive it to adopt them as sons. And I I hope you've noticed, maybe you have or maybe you haven't, when, when I preach 
I say sons and not sons and daughters. And it's not because daughters don't count. It's because God didn't adopt us as sons and daughters. He adopted us as sons, inheritors, firstborn, birthright. All of the rights and privileges of the firstborn of God. And so this calls to my mind naturally. Um, one of my sons is adopted. And we just this week received his final order of adoption. So it's a bit of a formality. Nothing's actually changed. But that is the last step through the courts. Everyone signed off on it. It's done. And you know, the law, the human law that we have, it is supposed to teach us. And in theory, in a just society, the, the laws that we live under would be moral. I think we recognize that's not always the case. In many cases, the laws are kind of not, they have nothing to do with morality. We all drive on the right side of the road because we just agree. It's just a law that we agree on to live. Some laws are wicked, and I, we, we can imagine what those are, but sometimes God is kind, and he uses our human laws to teach us things about himself. So I, w- I want to read just a few sentences from this final order of adoption because it, it shocked me. The, the strength of the language that's used, and it genuinely taught me something about what it means to be adopted by God. So I want you to listen to this. It's a legal document. Decreed that the above-named child is henceforth to all intents and purposes the child of Jacob de Courcy and Amy de Courcy, and shall be entitled to all the rights and privileges and subject to all the obligations of a child of said petitioners born in lawful wedlock. This document, this legal document, says that the state, the court, decrees that my son is my son in every possible sense. And even further, it says below, decreed that the papers in this matter be placed in a closed file and that they be sealed in the usual manner with an endorsement showing that they are not to be opened or inspected except upon further order of this court. It's done. That's it. It's over. It's as if, it is as if nothing ever happened. My son is my son. In every way, with all the rights and privileges and all the obligations of every son that I have. And it's sealed away forever. So when you hear that, consider, this is the General District Court of the State of Virginia, for whatever that's worth. God the judge on his throne has written down in his book and sealed away in his file. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God says, you are my son in every possible sense. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have received that birthright, if you have accepted that birthright, if you are indeed a firstborn of God most high, my urge to you today, my exhortation, is to act like it. Act like the firstborn of God. And I hope you hear that and you remember what I said earlier. The birthright is a privilege and an obligation. So when I say act like it, I don't mean to strut around as if you run the place. I mean to act like a firstborn of the king. With dignity, rightly executing your obligations, 
the confidence and assurity that comes from the authority of bearing the very name of God. So first, let me direct you to 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So first, as a child of God, as a firstborn inheritor of the birthright of God, one of your privileges is certainty. That legal document is signed and sealed by God himself. Your adoption is complete. And so do not fear. Do not be ashamed. Do not hide from God. Do not resist God when he disciplines you, when he gives you gifts. Your father loves you, and that cannot be taken away. It is done. Brothers and sisters, you also have an obligation. Part of your obligation comes from the authority of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see that all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. When a king sends his minion to go make some deal with the king next door, who is this guy? Why do I care about him? Why do you get to say? When the king sends his son to deliver a message, he means business. That's you. And the message is the message of the ministry of reconciliation. That is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is the message of which you are an ambassador as a son of God. Preach that message with authority. We do not have to beg. We do not have to whine. We do not have to hope that people will hear our message. We deliver the message with authority. And God will save whom he will. And back to 1 Peter, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks... Speak as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So as a member of God's church, as a son of God, you have been authorized, even ordained as his child, in whatever gift you have to do it with all of the authority born by a son of God. Whether you speak or serve, whatever you do for the Lord, God has told you that you are doing it through and for him. And finally, God consecrates his firstborn to himself. So we are so often like Esau, even if we do not despise our birthright in the sense that we reject it and cast it away, we are like Esau in that we think little of it. Or, even worse, we think well of it, but we think better of whatever else we were doing. Esau knew what a birthright meant. He really just wanted to hunt and be left alone. And that was not his job. 
See, we so often despise our birthright for things that are, frankly, pathetic. Like Esau, we are hungry. His tummy hurt. And he thought so little of all of the rights and obligations that came with being the inheritor of his father's house that that moment of hunger was enough for him to cast aside his entire birthright. Draw us away from our birthright are pathetic. I understand that some temptations to sin are truly, genuinely tempting. But so many of them are nothing. So many of them are red stew. And so I will leave you with this from Hebrews. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that no one is sexually immoral, that no one is unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Skipping ahead. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God, our Father, is a consuming fire. That is your birthright. You are chosen to be firstborn, to inherit God's promises, to wear his name, to wield his authority. You are consecrated for his holiness. You are a son of Brothers and sisters and friends, let us pray. Father, it is unimaginable upon sufficient consideration that I could even address you as Father. You are a consuming fire, creator of all things, preeminent ruler with the iron rod, judge of all. And yet... You have adopted me as your son. Lord, thank you for that immeasurable blessing, for that birthright shared as a co-heir with Jesus. Because I know only the tiniest earthly taste of how much it cost to redeem me for that purpose. And yet you've done it, and you've promised it, and you've secured it. Or no amount of worship could ever be enough. And we eagerly await the day when we can simply worship you forever. May that day come quickly. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Mine are tears in times of sorrow.